0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer and I started this podcast because I love learning from and talking to other researchers. Today I'm talking to Michael Weiner. He's a senior scientist in the computational research division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Dr. Weiner's current research concerns the behavior of extreme weather events in a changing climate, especially heat waves, intense precipitation, drought, and tropical cyclones. We talk about all of these things, as well as his pathway into science via nuclear engineering. He's an experienced science communicator. If you go to his website, you can find lots of lectures and media appearances that he's done over the years. Definitely check that out. It was a real pleasure to talk with Dr. Wehner and learn about his science and learn about his journey, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Wehner, for spending some time talking with me and chatting about science. Okay, super short intro today. Let's just get right into it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Weiner. Here we go. Well,
1: my main research. Years or so has been uh, the detection, uh, attribution, and projection of uh, climate change uh, due to uh, human changes to the atmosphere brought about by consumption of fossil fuels, uh, coal and oil, and, and natural gas. What I mean by that, detection, of course, is 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 you know is there has there been a change in the climate. Attribution is what caused that change, if there if there's one detected, and then the projection is is looking into the future and saying, you know, what do we expect to happen um, if we've even if we haven't seen a change yet, you know, do we do we you know we may maybe uh, project a change into the future as we continue to uh, uh, consume fossil fuels and change the composition of the atmosphere. Somewhere along the line, I got very interested in extreme weather. Um, principally extreme precipitation, extreme temperature at the beginning, for a couple of reasons. I think the first actually is kind of odd. Um, my own interest has has always been been attracted to uh, uh, elegant concepts, and the and what I discovered is that there's a very elegant statistical theory describing the the tails of distribution functions under a set of uh, relatively, uh, modest assumptions about the behavior of that, that distribution. And so, you know, I sort of got into it just because I liked the math. Hmm. Um, which is maybe a little odd, um, but um, but I quickly realized that this is this is where the rubber meets the road for climate change. Is that whether the temperature changes in the average by a few degrees, nobody cares. I mean, it changes that much over the day, the course of the mm. day, from from mm. the, the night to the daytime. It's, but big storms and heat waves and and whatnot like this are where people are really affected. Not just people, but uh, natural ecosystems as well. And so that. The impact of climate change on extreme weather actually is what really affects us, and so, um, right. so you know, I've been doing this now for a long time, um, and uh, and the field has 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 uh, advanced tremendously in the last couple of years, and I think we uh, we've learned a lot, we could say a lot about. Um, not just how much extreme weather, how extreme weather is going to change in the future, but how much it already has changed. And I think that's a really important um, uh, takeaway from what I have to say today is that, that the climate change is here now and the impacts are here now. And yeah. we have already um, felt felt these impacts. Some people have felt it more than others. There is a uh, an enormous injustice in all of this and that the impacts are not spread evenly through our society, they tend to be concentrated on on the poor, um, the poor in poor countries, of course, but also mm-hmm. the poor in developed countries, something I find uh, inherently unfair.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, was wondering if we could actually, if we could go back to the statistics a little bit, because I think not necessarily into the super nitty gritty details, but you mentioned, I, w- I wanted to hear a little bit more about uh, the mathematical underpinnings of what you do. So you said that you were interested in statistical distributions, like temperature distributions, for example, or it could be any kind of distribution. And that the mathematical framework that you were working in, basically, it sounded like, well, if you can make a couple of assumptions about your distribution, then there are things you can say about the tail of the distribution and how that might change in different situations could you could you say a little bit more about the statistical part if you don't mind just in in broad terms
1: yeah it's actually fairly simple um imagine you had a hundred years of of data um every day and you had the the uh the hottest and coldest temperature of the day which is a figure we actually do have for for in some places for a long period let's say let's say a century so that would be a hundred times 365 so it would be thirty six thousand five hundred numbers And that has a distribution but what i'm interested in is the tail of those of those of those days and so let's say we we made another distribution extracted out of that parent distribution of of the hottest uh, the hottest day of the year and so it's 100 years long so that would be then a a data set of 100 long Mm -hmm. and so the question is what is that distribution and that's that's that it turns out is is a uh, a distribution of, of numbers that is very well described by something called the generalized extreme value uh, hmm. a distribution the generalized extreme value theory is is where these assumptions come into play which are, are relatively modest about you know regularity and so so on that tend to just, that that describes um, daily te- daily temperature maximums the annual annual maximum of the daily maximum temperature the hottest time of the day quite well so originally the one of those assumptions was that the um, distribution should be stationary that is it doesn't change with time hmm. and of course um, uh, that is not the case with climate change and the statisticians had given us the tools to um, to deal with a uh, non stationary distributions but those tended those tended to be in the later chapters of the statistic books that most of us read, yeah. and uh, it wasn't until a young colleague of mine, Jana Silman, for her PhD thesis, actually read those chapters and, and <laughs> exploited those those techniques to tell us what to do, and so now I think the community understands that we really really have the the tools necessary to to. Describe the changing characteristic of these of these um, of of these kinds of fields in in a very mathematically rigorous way.
0: Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was just thinking about how, and I'd like to hear you talk about this because I noticed that you've got a background in physics, physics and nuclear engineering, for example. And at least in terms of my physics education and my grad, my kind of transition over to the earth system sciences broadly speaking i did have to get acquainted with statistics and the it, it wasn't something that we spent a lot of time talking about in my kind of physics curriculum right and there's there's a whole it's a whole different way to model things and think about reality where you don't necessarily try to tie it the distribution or the shape to a particular process you kind of say oh well this distribution describes the data set and therefore we'll use it to statistically model the data set was moving into statistical thinking. Was that a, an adjustment for you at some point in your career? Or was that something that you had kind of been familiar with throughout your whole career?
1: Yes. I did not take uh, statistics in, 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 uh, as an undergraduate or high school or, or in, um, or in graduate school. And, and I wish I had because climate you know, by by its very definition, is the statistical description of weather. Honestly, what I did is, when I finally realized that that uh, I needed to understand at least the elementary parts of statistics, I bought an undergraduate statistics book and I read it, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and uh, that took a little while. Um, you know, so um, um, it would have been been probably better if I had actually taken you know, a statistics course, but I had a good book and uh, I still have it. And I still use it actually all the time to, uh, to refresh my memory about, about details. Yeah. Oddly enough, I mean, I actually started a statistics journal, um, uh, or a journal that's supposed to be an interface, um, between statisticians and physical climate scientists. It's called, uh, we call it Askmo for short, um, uh, advances in statistical climatology meteorology and oceanography. Oh. And, um, it's a it's a niche journal intended to try to give up to give people that are doing applied statistics for climatology, um, a place to publish their methods because um the traditional climate journals don't really uh don't really publish too much of the nuts and bolts of uh of what's um uh, of of what some of the results are based on, and yeah. and those nuts and bolts are important, and so so our intent was to try to give a, give a venue for those kind of publications and publish about twenty papers a year, which which is is reasonable.
0: Yeah, so it's it's that interdisciplinary boundary between kind of mathematical yeah. statistics and climate.
1: Yeah. Exactly, and interdisciplinary stuff is always harder because mm. you have two different sets of 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 people with different backgrounds um, who sometimes speak different languages that sounds like English, but can be very foreign to each other.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That was especially, that was an adjustment process for me. Learning more statistics was connecting the vocabulary to I found that I did actually know some of the concepts, but I was just calling them something different, <laughs> and I had been calling them something different. So yeah, that vocabulary question is a uh, overcoming. Oh that.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that 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 happens a lot. Believe me.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Just out of my own selfish curiosity, uh, I know you're not put you're not listed as an oceanographer, but I, when you mentioned that that journal has some, an oceanography uh, as part of its focus, are there any I- extreme value applications in oceanography that you're you're aware of
1: yeah it depends how you define it i mean you know Hmm. at the end of the day the climate is both a couple it's a coupled system of the atmosphere and the ocean and so you know one has to deal with both of those but um um i think the most obvious one and again an application of extreme value um theory is um uh, marine heat waves um Hmm. that lead to coral bleaching Uh, a a young colleague of mine in in australia andrew king has uh recently written about um the coral bleaching events in in um in Australia, which are significant. Um that that's a definitely an example of of um of an extreme ocean event. Mm.
0: Um yeah, I spoke with um Simon Donner uh not too long ago who uh works in this kind of area too looking at coral coral bleaching events to get kind of back to I guess the what you've been working on. So that's the kind of big framework, right? You've that's what you've been working in the past couple of decades. Uh, have you had uh, Can you give us some examples of some recent projects that you've been working on? Is there something, and I'm kind of curious about like the boundaries of the field, you know, like what, what are some of the big challenges in the field right now? Where are the roadblocks and where are some advances likely to come from
1: next? Well, another area that I've, I've worked on for a long time is a high performance computing. I've worked my entire professional career at the, um, at, at, at the National Laboratories, the Department of Energy National Laboratories in the United States, uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab and, and now Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. I've been fortunate to have, even as a graduate student actually, had access to um, some of the fastest uh, computers um, on the planet. Yeah, actually, I've written a lot on, on, on performance of, of, of the computational performance of climate models and how to improve them. But um, some years ago I got I was as I was looking at some state-of-the-art calculations um, that, that somebody else had done actually um, I noticed something strange in in the data and and that was um, after after a day or two of noodling about it and looking at the data in different ways because I, I thought it was a bug um, it turned out there was a tropical cyclone, a hurricane being simulated uh, in this in this climate model and of course at that point and this was almost 10 years ago um maybe over 10 years ago we, we we knew that climate models didn't make hurricanes they they didn't have the uh, the fidelity the horizontal resolution required to simulate uh, such intense storms and so yeah this was sort of a mystery and um it turned out that model was at 50 kilometers and and uh, shortly afterwards um you know i started running the model myself and we were able to uh, Push the resolution to 25 kilometers. Now you have to understand the normal resolution at this time that most people would run at was probably about 200 kilometers. And so you know when we, we when we simulate the planet and climate models, we divide up the uh, the uh, we discretize the the planet into into uh, little boxes, um, you know not not squares but rectangles or. Sometimes triangles. At that time, they were about 200 kilometers on the side, and so this was a this was much more computationally expensive, and we could just barely squeeze the uh, the calculations out of the out of, out of the, the fastest computer in the world. But we did, and and what we noticed is that the simulation of the the uh, climatology, the statistical uh, simulation of the uh, numbers of hurricanes globally, was actually really quite good. That was that that was an important development because what it what it means is that. That we, we that we now have a tool to ask questions about how uh, tropical cyclones and hurricanes are affected by climate change. Anyone who's 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 lived through a hurricane knows that these are you know can be really really devastating events. I lived on the east coast of the United States as a child, and I remember uh, Hurricane Agnes in particular um, when I was a teenager. Um, you know, causing you know, big floods and, and uh, lots and lots of damages. You know, to make the long story short, what we've, what, we've, what we've learned is that climate change, almost certainly because of the warmer temperatures, makes the strongest storms, the category four and five storms, somewhat stronger, maybe quite a bit stronger. Um, so that the strongest storms in a warmer world are, are more intense than in a cooler world. Whether that's actually detectable, I talked about detection and attribution, whether that is debatable, but it's quite clear the amount of precipitation in these big storms has already changed by detectable amounts, um, and there's a, there's quite a bit of literature on that. Um, the first storm to really be um, to be studied in this context was Hurricane Harvey, which uh, impacted Houston. Hurricane Harvey was a very unusual storm in that it stalled, and and dumped copious amounts of rain on 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 Houston, the greater Houston, uh, uh, Texas area leading to, I think, 8,000 homes flooded and 70 people drowned. What we found is that um, that our best estimate was that climate change increased the amount of precipitation by 40%. Now, before we did that analysis, I thought it would be close to 7%. And the reason for that is we we understand... Um, basically from steam engine technology, the relationship between saturation-specific humidity, how much water and uh, air can hold, and temperature. And we know that it increases at about 6% per degree centigrade at the temperatures that we we live in. And so it seemed that, well, if the atmosphere is 6% wetter, then there should be 6% more rain in such a highly saturated environment. But that turned out not to be true. Um, and we weren't the only ones to say that the uh, that we that our best estimates of the the increase in precipitation over Houston was was more than seven percent. Uh, uh, my colleague Jan von Oldenburg, estimated that, and then another group in in Utah came up with a similar a similar number and using very different techniques, which I think is really important. So they were independent groups using different. Uh, data sets, different analysis methods came up with basically the same answer that this was bigger than what we might have thought
0: right, they were um, under underestimates right
1: that that our that that you know our initial gut feeling you know based on the on what we thought was the right theory um, were were too low and hmm. uh, uh, more recently um, using some very high not global simulations but but uh sort of weather prediction kind of resolutions of three and four kilometers Christina Cole, and I showed that there are there are changes to the structure to the structure of, the, of hurricanes under mm. of intense hurricanes under climate change or at least there it appears to be and that would then give us some some um, dynamical contributions to uh, mm-hmm. precipitation that are above and beyond this thermodynamic uh, relationship of called Clausius Clapeyron, actually, um, of 6% per degree yeah. centigrade. And so that's, um, that, that, I think, is is one of the more impactful um, results of, uh, of our recent research. Um, and yeah. I say our, by it's a large community, it's not just me.
0: No, of course, that sounds consistent with something I heard Ted Shepard say back at a meeting, I don't know, 2014. He was talking about climate change and what we know and what we don't know. And he put it pretty succinctly. he said, "Well we're pretty good at thermodynamics, but we're not as good at dynamics so your that example that you just gave me sounds really consistent with that that we know the thermodynamic part really pretty well, but it's harder to predict the dynamics and understand that because there are so many different scales involved and so many different processes involved. So I was kind of curious when you said that there seem to be structural changes. What happens to the hurricane are they? Is it like a uh, a, s- a speed of circulation well,
1: the, or over- it, Well, it's 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 a it's a little early to really be too definitive about things about like wind speed. Um, and size, okay. I think that size is interesting. Um, and it, there's some indication that our are size changes, although that that's that would be more controversial. But I think what mm-hmm. what's 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 quite obvious from from, uh, Christina and my my simulations is that. The parts of the storm that rain the most become wetter than the parts of the storm that don't rain as much, and so um, the distribution of rainfall within a, within a uh, hurricane is very non-uniform. Depends on a lot of factors, the size being one, but also the, w- the way that it's the way that it's moving. And uh, Houston had the unfortunate uh, circumstance of being underneath the part of Harvey that was raining the most, and so that's why these studies that didn't really look at that kind of thing gave the results that we found just because of where Houston was. If Houston had been somewhere else and relative to the rainiest part of Harvey, then we wouldn't have seen that. Uh, But we've seen this again for, we've seen this again for Hurricane Florence, uh, Hurricane Dorian, a paper coming out shortly on that. And Chris and I looked at uh, uh, Katrina and Maria. Maria is the one that that, uh, impacted uh, uh, Puerto Rico so heavily Hmm. um, and found... uh, you know these very large sobering increases in the rainfall now you know wind wind is another area where mm. the damages can be just as just as large i mean in fact <clears throat> besides you know the obvious things of having roofs blown off and that kind of thing the the winds in a hurricane if you're on, if you're at the coast will increase the uh, the the uh, the tide the the, the storm surge mm. and so um, so in some places um if you're inland the flood the the flooding is fresh water it's from the rain and Houston was that but in other places it will be uh salt water because of the storm surge uh in hurricane sandy that was what happened in lower manhattan is there was a 13 foot storm surge and you know flooded lower manhattan and you know it cost billions of dollars um and and in some places it's a combination of both in hurricane florence there were towns that uh that were on uh, inlets that uh, where where fresh water was flowing down the river and tidal surges were coming up the other direction and so they gave, they had a double whammy
0: what aspect of climate change is it that is contributing to some of these changes you know what what can we say about that i guess the I mean ocean temperatures will get warmer but there's also changes in evaporation um, in the water cycle right it's can we say much about what it seems to be what uh climate change induced kind of mechanism could be responsible for changing things
1: well for the case of intense hurricanes um and this is why i think we really understand this i think the community agrees that the most intense hurricanes become more intense both in their wind speed and in their precipitation because there's more available energy Mm. it's as simple as that when there's a when there's a category four category five hurricane the um conditions for for what we call cyclogenesis are perfect. And that is that there's high high temperatures, there's a lot of humidity, and there's low wind shear. Wind shear is the difference between winds in the upper atmosphere and the lower atmosphere. If, if the wind shear, if that difference is too large, the wind shear is too large, the hurricanes tend to tilt and then they chew up themselves and they never get to be really big. Yeah. But in circumstances where that, where that difference in wind speeds um in the ambient environment is is low and the other conditions are are right then um then then a major hurricane can develop in a a warmer world the conditions where we have the low the low uh, wind shear is relatively random and will happen sometimes Mm -hmm. um it doesn't appear that that's going to change much but we do know that both um the ocean temperature is increasing, and as a result of the fact that the ocean and the air temperatures are increasing, that the available humidity is higher, the specific humidity is higher because of this six percent per degree Kelvin uh, Clausius-Clapeyron scaling uh, rule, and so there's more sensible heat from the from the surface ocean temperature and more latent heat available from the uh, from from The moisture, and so uh, that mechanism is is what really explains all of this part of the story. But there's another important part of the story that is less solid, and there's a lot, and it's you know that's where of course things get more interesting from a scientific point of view. You know, if you know the answer, you know who cares. But if you don't know the answer, then that's where research becomes becomes uh, interesting and important. And and that is the total number of hurricanes. You know, how many hurricanes will there be in the future? I think most people agree there won't be more whether there'll be less or the same number is is um is uh, an interesting uh, an interesting uh question I think it's clear that in a warmer world the condition the potential for for cyclogenesis for tropical cyclone genesis is 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 generally more favorable because it's warmer but it doesn't it's not necessary that that potential is realized. I mentioned some of the aspects that you need for for a hurricane to form, but there's one other thing that has to happen, and there has to be some kind of initial disturbance, a seed as it will, as it were, that starts things spinning if the if the uh, number of seeds changes, then one would expect that to have an effect, effect on the uh, on the number of hurricanes, and so uh, the question really comes down to: Is the number of hurricanes limited by the number of seeds, or not? And and my my feeling at the moment is is probably is in some places, particularly in the Pacific, um, but it might not be elsewhere. Well. A fair number of us, not, I know means all of us, believe that the the global number of hurricanes over integrated overall strengths from, from category one to category five on the Saffir-Simpson scale will, will decrease globally. That may not be true uniformly in different ocean basins. So you might have a different change of the number in the Atlantic than in the western pacific you know that's that's where a lot of research is going right now um some recent papers have come down on this side that that the number will reduce but i I don't think i think that we, we we don't quite have a consensus on this yet
0: right okay that's really interesting so that problem sounds difficult and i'm guessing that the reason it's difficult comes back to dynamics again because we have to understand Changes in atmospheric circulation and changes in the instabilities there to understand the seeds, as you put it, is that uh, is that a fair? I'm kind of guessing, but is that? A yeah, fair no,
1: that, that's that's fair. Um, but another significant limitation is that while computers have increased in 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 their uh, their performance over the last decade by a lot, the uh, the ability to, to make lots lots of simulations, lots of detailed simulations, um, is Still limited. Back when when I first found this thing that was not a bug in in our code, um, there were very few people that had the computational resources to be able to do that. There are, you know, maybe 10 groups nowadays that have that kind of resource to one degree or another. And, and those simulations are now starting to be done. Whenever you make such a drastic change to to the climate model, though, there are other things that have that you – know, they're very complicated beasts. And it's not just as simple as, as uh, cranking up the resolution and, you know, starting the jobs. I mean, one has to uh, spend a lot of time making sure that the model actually hasn't had too much violence done to it. Models are – models are highly tuned and the, and the tuning does depend on resolution. So so we're 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 limited I think by uh, some of these theoretical issues, but we're also limited by some of the practical ones.
0: Right. And that practical issue, you, know, you mentioned that you can't just crank up the resolution because you have all of these parameters that have been tuned for that appropriate resolution. That makes me think about um, that ties into the fact that a lot of, well, all climate models have some kind of representation of what's happening on the subgrid scales, on the scales smaller than the boxes that represent, you know, individual grid cells. And you have to represent them sometimes like diffusive processes or kind of downslope kind of processes. Well, there's still, that's that's the challenge, right? That the atmosphere and ocean have so many different scales, it's hard to represent them all at once. And it's hard to represent the rele- all the relevant scales at once, so I imagine that part of the roadblock is that we still don't know the right parameterizations for some of these subgrid scale processes. We don't know how to represent them in a big climate model necessarily.
1: Um, yes, and, yeah. and of these subgrid scale parameterizations, the most important one, or the most the the least constrained one, let's say put that way. Mm is is the representation of uh, cumulus convection so cumulus mm. clouds you know there certainly are no clouds that are two hundred kilometers across and there are no clouds that are twenty five kilometers across either and so even at twenty five kilometers we have to um we have to parameterize the effect of of uh, of convection mm. vertical you know the vertical motion in the atmosphere of of moisture due to buoyancy instabilities. It turns out that around arguably four kilometers, certainly around two kilometer resolution, we no longer have to parameterize this kind of convection. Now, you know, arguably there's maybe some clouds that are two kilometers across, but at least at two kilometers, we can, we resolve what they call cloud systems. Maybe not individual clouds, but at least the system of them. So that kind of a resolution really has an appeal from a uh, modeling point of view because instead of parameterizing convections we can do direct numerical simulation and uh, there's still lots of other parameterizations that that are that that need to be um, uh, need to be uh, included in this model but this 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 one particular one which is the least constrained by observations we can remove this paper that chris Christina and Patrick and I wrote use those models. Now we didn't have the computational power to do it at the global scale, and and for many centuries, um, we we used the model in in a, in a forecast mode over just regional as regional parts of the globe um, to look at individual storms. But computers are getting to the point. Um, the new one being installed at um, at the Berkeley Lab, which is which is a um, very large machine um, with a lot of uh, GPUs, graphical processing units on it, which, which are fast processors, and other machines uh, being installed at, at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and Argonne National Laboratory, which are even bigger, would enable us to run these models at these resolutions for multi-decadal periods and get out, the, get out many, many questions, not just hurricanes, um, other kinds of, of extreme weather like... Um, um, mesoscale convective systems, which are the kinds of storms that produced uh, uh, hail and tornadoes and those kinds of things in the Midwest, um, a better representation of frontal systems and better, better representation of atmospheric rivers and even extratropical cyclones, all of which are ext- different kinds of storms. May behave differently than tropical cyclones under global warming, um, but can also, that also lead to to big impacts? Um, the challenge there is is um, is large. One of which is that in order to exploit the GPUs, these graphical processing units, the codes generally need to be rewritten. These codes are big monster codes with you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of lines, yeah. uh, often in Fortran, um, yeah. that, that need to be, uh, and legacy codes, you know, some of which is written a long time ago. And so this requires significant investment in software engineering. But, you know, and then that's not the only thing. I mean, they also do pr- produce copious amounts of data. I mean, my colleague Di Stone and I generated four petabytes of compute, of, of, simulation data over a period of about three or four years, and that was just two guys with a fast computer and, and <laughs> not even at this, this, this uh, um, the, the, these high resolutions, you know, a whole yeah. team of people with even better access would generate many, many petabytes of, of data, probably per simulation. And so analyzing terabytes of data at the very least is a very challenging task um mm. from from just a, a practical software point of view um Absolutely. but it opens up lots of possibilities too um machine learning being one of them
0: i was just going to ask you about that actually to see if you had any thoughts on machine learning you know it's kind of it's there's a danger of it being considered a buzzword but it is kind of undeniably here in our in our analysis space and i've i've used it i've written a paper with it and um, it's, it could be a really important, important part of our toolkit, I think, because it parameterizations is one area where machine learning seems to be useful. You can train a parameterization and, uh, it hopefully gets something that still behaves somewhat physically reasonably. I mean, that's one approach parameterizations and also data analysis is another kind of approach. So have you been, uh, what, what do you have? Do you have thoughts on? machine learning as an analysis tool?
1: Well, it's a tool. Yeah. Um, you know, people often call it artificial intelligence too, which is, mm. you know, that's maybe not the best word for, but it maybe machine learning isn't the best word for it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's statistics. Yeah, yeah, um, high powered statistics. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and it has, and I believe it has been oversold, maybe not by our community, but certainly by others, mm. um, you know, which, which tends to happen. Um, but on the other hand it 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 can be useful um we've we d- we developed a uh, a an image recognition um, set of uh, of machine learning algorithms that that i call i call it the facebook app because instead of finding you know people and puppies um, we find tropical cyclones and atmospheric rivers and and frontal systems you you generate Terabytes of data, and the question is, you know, how do you find something useful in it? And yeah. and one one, if I want to describe the behavior of tropical cyclones in these in these uh, data sets, I have to find them first. You know, I first thought I could look at movies and and just pick them out and say, okay, you know, on just on April first there was a hurricane. You know, but but no, it doesn't work. That you go, that's a quick yeah. route to insanity. Oh, yeah. um, you need to have some kind of automated technique, and there are algorithms that that work quite well for hurricanes. But for other kinds of storms, um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, uh, frontal systems are a good example of it. Um, my colleagues um, at NOAA led by Ken Kunkel were, uh, um, took a database of weather prediction um, uh, results um, for 50 years of the United States where, where people had looked at the maps and, and a human being had drawn a front a weather front, and the way that the way that it would happen every day or twice a day, I guess, um, uh, three meteorologists would look at the data and they would draw the front, and then their boss would pick pick the one that was the official uh, official, official uh, analysis. Okay. And the beauty of this is that this was developed um, by many many different people over many years, and the errors were relatively random, and so we they they used this data set. Um, plugged into standard um, image recognition um, uh, software available, were able to reproduce the um, the observations very uh, accurately. But there were some places where the, um, where the machine learning and the training data set, you know, so they traded out a, and ch- tested out a sample and then compared it, the machine learning to the human product. And they found there were some differences. And it turned out that in general, the machine was better than the training data that went into it, mm. and that was a surprise to me. And um, but my machine learning specialist said, "No, nah, it's not surprising at all." I mean, um, especially if if the errors introduced by the humans were random. Mm. Um, if one person had done this, then the errors would be very systematic. They um, they weren't. Um, and so so it turns out the humans tended to make sins of omission. So they 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 the machine would draw a front where the humans hadn't, and when we went back and looked at it, the machine was probably right um, more often than not. And so, um, so that's a really good example of of, of using of using the machine learning to do something that a human could do, but you can't do practically looking at at many many you know, hundreds of years, for instance, of of uh, simulated data. You know, you yeah. simply couldn't, you just don't have the resources to do that.
0: Absolutely. How are you for a time? I wanted to make sure we talked about your pathway a little bit before you have to go on to your next Oh
1: yeah, sure. sure. I think we've covered some of the most interesting things that I've worked on recently. Yeah, as you mentioned, I I studied physics as an undergraduate at the University of Delaware, and then I went to... um, the University of Wisconsin for graduate school and studied nuclear engineering. Yeah. Um, and in, in there I was I was interested in in fusion. I was I was sort of sold that bill of goods as this young person. My thesis advisor Bill Wolfer, was a, a is a wonderful man, and he saw that I was of a more theoretical bent, and and put me on a problem of um, what they call the first wall, which is um, what happens to the uh, the insides of a fusion, rea- a plasma fusion reactor, when it's bombarded with uh, very high energy neutrons from from fusion, it turned out at that time it was a great thesis, and we we, we um, solved a problem, an outstanding problem, but nobody cared because Ronald Reagan had pretty much axed the fusion budget right around the time I got my PhD. Oh, yeah. And so um so uh, yeah so uh, it took me a long time to find find a job and i ended up at uh, at at Lawrence livermore laboratory uh doing something i never dreamed i would be doing and i was in the nuclear weapons design program mm. and so um so the first 7 years or so of my um my career um at livermore was classified um working on uh on uh, various aspects of uh of uh, nuclear weapons design particularly in codes i i wrote a lot of code mm. i, I kind of got a not tired of it, but I, what I realized is that all the really interesting problems had either already been solved or weren't ever going to be solved or might certainly not be solved by me. Hmm. And so I was sort of looking around for other fields and um, and I stumbled on uh, atmospheric modeling. They needed somebody who, was, who could write codes. And because I had learned a lot about writing codes in the weapons program, you know, I basically transferred that talent um, Immediately, and wow. um, is it the and, same uh,
0: same location? And, you were able to just stay in the yeah. Livermore
1: and, um, was a different place at that time, and, mm-hmm. and a lateral move like that was really quite quite easy to do. Oh. I'm not sure it is now, and mm-hmm. I don't think it was such a lateral move was easy to do at every laboratory, but it was at that time in the in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. You know, Fortran is Fortran, and so <laughs> yeah. um, so you know, I wrote some codes for climate models using using what I had learned. Yes. And eventually, <laughs> eventually, though, I, I, um, I, I uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is my own interest, but also funding realities, I, I, I turned from writing uh, the climate models to being an analyst, um, trying to analyze the, the output of these things. And, that, and that's where I really wanted to be at the end. It took a long time, but that's where I really wanted to be, is, is um, trying to understand what's really happening. In, in the climate system and not just uh building the models the building building models is a career unto itself and a great one. I really respect it. I think that the people that do it are um are usually the unsung heroes um yeah definitely. they write a lot of fortran and and c and whatnot or python but not necessarily a lot of english and so they don't necessarily write a lot of papers but right. yeah. um their work is their work is 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 critical to uh, to those of us who do write a lot of papers. You know, they're not generally recognized. And this is not just the, the my title, I think back those days was code physicists, um, but also the uh, computer scientists who make them make these things sing. Because, yeah. you know, it's easy to write, it, well, it's not easy to write a climate model, but it's, easy, it's easier to write a very, very slow one. <laughs> to write a very fast one is, is very uh, difficult. And of course, we're limited by computer power. And so being mm. able to squeeze the most uh, uh, the mo- the more, most flops out of these machines is a, is a very important task.
0: There's a push to change this. There's a push to change how we kind of evaluate scientists and scientific contributions. The uh, the push is sort of, you know, there's Ryan Ebernethy and uh, other people, and the idea is that well maybe we should put software and software contributions on par with you know papers and paper writing that. Like you say, those folks who are writing the code and writing the software—that work is absolutely essential to moving everything ahead. It's not going to happen without significant software development. So, maybe you know, the the folks who sit at that interface of science and programming could use some more more respect in that way. Uh,
1: and well, I I think it's it's fair to say that that the successful institutions do that. Hmm you know they it may not be completely equitable, but they certainly recognize the um the contribution of uh you know the folks in the trenches who are who are doing that very difficult work um right. but yeah. but it may not be as visible and um that that's you know it's human nature i think to uh, to focus on those things that are that are highly visible but but one has to recognize that there's a lot there's a lot of uh of effort that isn't so highly visible that is enabling that kind of science. When you
0: transitioned from working on that kind of nuclear, nuclear design to, to physics, what did that transition look like? Did you have to basically put yourself through a kind of graduate school again, read a bunch of textbooks? Did you have some people advising you? Did you have some people kind of helping you into the field in some way?
1: Just, you know, oh, of course. You know, I, I, um, I, uh, I I read a lot of books. I read, read a lot of papers. Hmm. Um, um, I I was the 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 code that I was working on um, at the time had come out of UCLA. I used to go down there a lot and talk to uh, professors Machoso and and uh, Arakawa, who hmm. were um, who, who were very welcoming. Actually, you know, I always felt like I sort of had a second graduate career with those guys. Um, you know, in my thirties, definitely heard yeah of Arakawa, I mean you know Arakawa, yeah. you know um yeah Arakawa is a, is is a wonderful man um mm-hmm. I owe him a lot, you know, I think a good scientist is always trying to learn for me, this was you know someone paid me to learn, um which was a good a good situation to be in, yeah, it wasn't easy, but it was fun, and so um you know that's 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 uh you know' I'm still trying to do that, i mean, you know this machine learning stuff is pretty weird um you know, and that's good in a good way. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot, a lot to, lot to, to learn, a lot of interesting things to to find out. And then, then once you do, then try to use that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I was also thinking about, so you uh, have kind of, did you grow up on the East coast? Did you grow up around Delaware or?
1: Yeah, um, I grew up in yeah. Wilmington, went to Slaziano school, high school, learned physics from a man named Mr. Carpenter who, um, Years later, I read, I met a guy from from Delaware, and I said, "Where'd you go to school?" And he said, "I went to Sally's." And uh, I said, "You didn't take Mr. Carpenter for physics, <laughs> I sure did." <laughs> and and uh, yeah, that that guy had become a physicist because of Mr. Carpenter, and I did too. And so, uh, so uh, high, high school is important.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's uh, the small world effect, huh? You meet another. Yeah, it was too. it was
1: really funny. Yeah. Uh, he was eight years older than me, but you know, it had you know, kind of taken the same path.
0: Oh wow, is that a small town, big town? Where, where you, was it? De- kind well, of well, dense well, where you grew up, or kind of suburban? Um,
1: uh Wilmington is um is 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 a, is a pretty moderate sized town. It's so sm- it's, small compared to Philadelphia, but big compared to other towns.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, but you've ended up living on the west coast, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, we we. California, yeah. fires are you know an issue. Um, we didn't talk about that. It's it's another research interest. I'm, I haven't published much on this. I'm trying to learn more about how climate change affects fires. If for no other reason, it, that's actually where climate change became really very real for me. Um, there's no question in my mind that that um, climate change has impacted the uh, risk of fire in, in in the western United States and elsewhere. Several friends of mine lost fa- less homes in um, in uh, last last three years um, due to these fires. Um, one person that I know lost their elderly mother. Hmm. And um, for me, you know, even though I was th- studying hurricanes, where you know we packed a lot of people, this the fires where it really became real for me, and not such a not such an academic uh, exercise. You know, the, the air quality in, in the Bay Area was just unbelievably bad for. This past year, this past summer, for you know weeks, it's
0: right because of all the fire, because of the. Um, so, are they getting? They're getting more. Well, tell me a little bit about that. What's uh, what are some of the? Are you taking a statistical approach to this a um, kind of process and physics based approach? A bit, a bit of both.
1: Yeah, a bit of both. Um, trying to understand uh, through through the observations, you know, what the uh, what the what the risk is, how the risk has changed. And I think that's the way to look at this. I mean, it it is a as a risk in you know, a risk framing approach.
0: Yeah. If if there's anything you want to say about about this research that you've been working on, yeah, feel feel free. It's your it's well, episode. You well,
1: know, you know, my my research is is particularly uh, particularly early. Okay. Um but but it, but it is fair to say that I think that um, much of the community understands that um, in addition to forest management uh, practices, which have led to to higher fuel in some of the forests, particularly in national forests. Hmm. Um, but in addition to that, the fact that it's warmer makes things drier and more combustible. And in some areas, you know, particularly in the interface between the rural and the urban areas. These forest management practices aren't really a, aren't really a factor, you know. So, like the fires in Santa Rosa, for instance. I mean, you know, that appears to me to be uh, the the any increase in risk would have been um, solely due to climate change, not because the vegetation is different. It really isn't any different now than it was fifty years ago. Well, that's interesting.
0: So you have locations where the vegetation might not have changed very much, and those almost give you a cleaner Way to test if there's been some shift in the statistical distribution of the fire because
1: a lot of the other uh, underlying on, factors. On the other hand, the population density has changed a lot, mm-hmm. and so that's another factor that, that has to be that has to be. Um, um, if you want to look at the total, the total, the like the frequency of ignition, the mm-hmm. uh, the number of people that are in an area matters as well, and so it's a very complicated problem. You know, not just um, not just the thermodynamics, but also the uh, the biology, and also the uh, the sociology, and so um, yeah, there you go. So so that's uh, then the other then the other thing I'm interested in is 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 social, and that is um, how how um, climate change affects the poor, and uh, we're working with Federico Castillo at the University of California, Berkeley, who is a um, an agricultural economist, and um, what, we, what we're trying to understand is the effect of of heat waves on the health of agricultural workers in California. Yeah, you know, mo- many of those are undocumented uh, workers, and um, they're at particular risk because they they generally aren't that healthy and are reluctant to um, to seek help when they need it. And so, um, because of risk of deportation and whatnot, again, where climate change becomes real because it's it's an issue that's here and now. Definitely. What, what kind of methods do you use
0: for a study like that? Is it, because um, I guess I'm just not familiar with the kinds of data sets that you might have access to for that kind of study.
1: Well, data, that that's, that it's data limited. You know, there, there are some hospital hospitalization records. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to obtain, you know, a lot of, it, some of it's anecdotal. The physics, this is relatively straightforward. We have, we have measures of, of, uh, the effect of, of, uh, heat on human, on human health through the heat index and the wet bulb globe temperature and mm. effective temperature. Uh, you know, these are, these are concepts that are fairly well established. Relating those to directly to human health is, is, uh, is a challenge, um, uh, but, it is, you know, when you do have data, uh, uh, the human data, it's relatively straightforward it's, uh, uh, statistical methodologies, not necessarily extreme values.
0: Okay, yeah. And, well, like you said, there's a clear, there's going, there's going to be a clear link there between if you have more heat waves and hotter days that obviously is going to impact people. And, yeah, I totally think it's a really important point, this idea that climate change is going to disproportionately affect um, the poor and disproportionately affect nations that maybe don't have as much in terms of resources to be able to adapt to any changes.
1: Um, Uh, I would, I would, I would alter that statement just a little bit. Okay. You put it in the future tense.
0: Oh yeah. It's here.
1: (laughs) It needs to be in the present tense.
0: Yeah, you're right. It already, it already has.
1: Yeah. And, And I think the sooner we recognize that, the better, the better we are prepared to, uh, to
0: act. Because then you can have, if you recognize that it's here already, then you can have conversations about climate justice and conversations about solutions that that respect that reality, that respect the disproportionate impacts that are already here.
1: And we, and we can no longer expect the future generations to fix this problem. We need to fix it now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's here. Absolutely.
1: Because it's only um, going to get worse if we don't do anything, if we don't do something.
0: For sure, yeah. Do you have any thoughts you want to share along those lines
1: about, uh, I mean? None, none are particularly profound. I mean, you know, we need to reduce our uh, input. Um, yeah. Scott Denning But says, we also uh, need to adapt. We, uh, you know, that's the obvious thing, but we also need to adapt. And mm-hmm. um, and I think that's sort of some of the kind of research we talked about today is, is useful, is to inform decision makers about uh, adapting, so how water resource managers you know build out their infrastructure or how um, cities deal with deal with the human health consequences of heat waves mm-hmm. um, you know these are these are things that policymakers think about every day um and climate change needs to inform those kinds of decisions. Climate change research needs to inform those kinds of decisions,
0: yeah, absolutely. I don't have as good of a sense as I probably should about how to get. That scientific information into the hands of policymakers. I mean, there are researchers who create tools to try to help policymakers to try to inform their decision making. Um, simple models that have representations of how the climate system changes under different policy options. We spoke with uh, Professor John Sturman a couple of weeks ago, who does this kind of system dynamics a couple of months ago now. Uh, system dynamics, he calls it. It's, it's dynamical systems, but it includes um, human activity, and it includes uh, how social systems respond, and uh, rests on that kind of dynamical systems framework. I guess that's that's one option, but there hopefully are other ways to keep that that conversation.
1: Well, I, I think I think the answer actually is fairly simple. One can expect you know people that are in decision making positions to understand the nuances of climate change. And one can't expect uh, climate change researchers to understand the nuances of decision-makers. And so the only way that one can really make these decisions well-informed is by bringing these two groups of people together. And this is, you know, we talked about interdisciplinary. This is as interdisciplinary as it gets, Um, you know, because you've got people with very different backgrounds who are... Have learned their their professions in very different ways, and have very different ways of describing it. But at the end of the day, that information needs to go from the one community to the next, and it's it's a two way kind of street too. Actually, you know, the decision makers need to need to tell the science, climate researchers, you know, what kind of things they they they're important to them. Climate scientists need to tell them what they can and cannot say about those things. You know, I think it I think it requires you know that kind of human interaction. You know, you can't just deliver a bunch of tools and expect people to do the right things with them.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I like that. I, we don't have to end necessarily right now. I'm not trying to wrap up, wrap us up if there's more you want to talk about. But I also, you know, I think we work, hit.
1: I think we hit everything at this point. It's kind of a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I do want to, you know, respect your your time as well. And we often end with this set of questions about what you've learned. And uh, so, if that's all right, I'll just we'll kind of go through those and yeah, sure. see what you uh, would like to say about some of these things. So thinking you know you can go as far back as as you like in terms of the starting point for these questions, but could you say something about what have you learned about science in your approach to it? You know you started in high high school as one possible starting place, and then you've now been at the the national lab for many years, and uh, just if you have Kind of, there must have been a lot of things you learned, I imagine. But if you just, if you had to pick one thing to mention, anything come to
1: mind? Well, um, you know, I think, I think the thing that's interesting about science, being a scientist, is that um, you know, if, if you're fortunate to get in a position like I have, where you're able to just ask questions um, and and pursue them and many times those questions don't have good answers you mm-hmm. know for one reason or another you know you may not have the right understanding you may not have the data um but sometimes you know you have everything works out and um and you get to you get to learn something and 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 you know when you learn something that nobody else knows that's a, that's a really empowering feeling um and um Oh. Then of course the responsibility is to tell people about it, you know, and that's <laughs> why we write our papers. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I I, I think I, you know maybe it's a little egotistical, but I really love that feeling of of discovering something,
0: being on that frontier. Yeah, you mentioned writing papers. What's something you learned about writing? Do you enjoy that process
1: at all? I did not do well in English in school. Yeah. Um, um, I flunked in elementary school. my kids used to think that was funny uh-huh. um, um, yeah um you know, you know it i the thing I learned about writing is that um the more you've thought about what you wanna write, the easier it is,
0: hmm.
1: and so um, so I find that you know after I've been working on something for a, for quite a while, and I have an answer. Then the writing part is actually really quite easy. And I really enjoy that. Um, when someone says, write something about this that I haven't thought about for a long time, then it's really hard. Yeah.
0: So the difference is if you're, if you're already kind of loaded up with a lot of ideas, then the process yeah, of getting yeah. them down onto the paper isn't so bad. That's yet.
1: exactly it. Exactly it. Is having the ideas in your head um, <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is a lot easier task
0: so you've done a lot of public outreach and i wonder if you learned something about that what have you learned about public outreach and communication
1: oh it's hard <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah um, you, you know I, I have been doing it a lot and um i tell i tell uh, um young scientists you know to uh take whatever training is offered um mm. the professional organizations and some 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 uh, institutions I'll offer media training, and um, you know if you're gonna do that kind of outreach, it really would help. I wish I had. You know, I, there's certainly been times when you know I've talked to uh, members of the media, and I realized that they're not understanding about that. I'm way too, I'm way too into the jargon. That that's a that's a uh, that that's a challenge is to to try to drop out of the jargon and into plain English mm. um, and describe describe what you've learned. It's, so sometimes it's really, really hard because, you know, that's the way you think about it all the time. That's where I think the media training helps, actually.
0: Right. We're back to the vocabulary problem that we kind of started talking about at the beginning of the conversation about, you know, translating across those interdisciplinary boundaries. And it's there's another place where it's relevant is uh, figuring out how to say things in in plain English with as little jargon as possible but still, to retain the complexity in there, to kind of keep the complexity without uh, loading it up with too many specialist words, you know, that is a tricky. Yeah, part. exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. So,
0: what's well, so the? What about you? Mentioned mentoring a little bit. Mentoring scientists who are kind of getting started. What's something you've learned about mentoring? Not too many uh, yeah, it's these. also it's
1: it's also really hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, and it may be harder for someone at the laboratories um, than than a uh, than someone in the universities. Um, we don't have as many uh, young scientists uh, come through. We don't have students generally. Um, we do have students, but we don't have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I should say we tend to have more more postdoctoral candidates who are, are or postdoctoral fellows who are are um, further along. Actually, I think everybody needs mentoring, and, and you know throughout their career. And, I mean, I've certainly had some really good, good mentors. Um, um, one, one, one fellow who's been particularly mentoring to me is a guy named Don Wobbles, who, um, is, is who I met at Livermore lab years ago. And, um, He's been at the University of Illinois and I told him he, that that I regard him as a mentor he's, he's a little older than me he said he said well, I thought you were mine <laughs> <laughs> so so I guess it could go both ways
0: <laughs> that's excellent. <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> I'm following your lead all yeah, right yeah
1: <laughs> so uh, yeah I guess maybe the point there is you know it's important to to uh, to mentor people but it's also important to be mentored to accept and to, that to you know to accept that,
0: Michael, it's been a real pleasure. Is there anything else you want to cover? Do you feel satisfied with
1: the no, I, I, range? I think we, I think we, we, we covered a broad range of topics. Yeah, we did absolutely. Yeah, Thanks uh, so
0: much for your. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Uh, no, I mean, you know, if if uh, people want to email me, um, you know, my my information is pretty easy to find on on the internet. So. Good. Yeah,
0: yeah. Academics somehow we're kind of easy to find. Yeah, usually the places where we work. They they make it kind of easy yeah. easy to track us down, which is fine. Indeed,
1: they do. Yeah, it, it, it's it's transparency's sake that I think is important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your experience with me. I really appreciate it. This has been a real uh, pleasure for me. I've had such a nice nice time, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed these chats so much, especially during the. You know, we're now in a national lockdown again over here in England, so. I mean, I wasn't really going out before, but now there's just this extra layer of, uh, you know, you're basically supposed to hide in your house. Pretty much is what you're supposed to do. Uh, so it's been especially nice to talk to, to talk to people, you know, during these uh, these times. So I, I especially appreciate that opportunity and to learn a bit more about what you do. So uh, thanks. Again. Oh, certainly. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you later. All
1: right. You take care. Bye now.
0: Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Michael Wehner, Dr. Michael Wehner. Thanks very much for spending some time with me, Dr. Wehner, talking about your research. Something that, uh, on a different topic, I'd like to bring up something here in the outro. Just a question. I'd like to raise a question. I don't have an answer to it. I don't have a great solution for this. But in thinking about how we as a field, how do we become more inclusive? How do we become... Um, How do we lower some of those artificial participation barriers? I think one place we could do better is when we're interviewing neurodiverse applicants for our jobs and our PhD positions. So someone with neurodiversity, they might require a different set of conditions than, let's just say, a neurotypical person. They might find the social situation of the interview pretty uh overwhelming just in terms of the amount of information that's coming at them so potentially I mean every neurodiverse person is different but you can imagine that asking a neurodiverse person to do well in an interview could be like asking a neurotypical person to do well while juggling so there need to be some special provisions there maybe some extra time maybe having the questions ahead of time it's it's a conversation we should be having and I just wanted to raise it here take care I hope you're well 拜拜